Welcome to TB Community. I am Bob Domena, and here with me, as always, is the very untroubled Elliot Shibley. Oh, Elliot, I, I wish that were true. It is, it, dude, it is true. I know, I know there are troubles, but you manage them well, and Thank you yeah. sail forward. I sail, yes. So before we get into the show, we do want to take a moment to inform everyone that we have some website changes. We mentioned this earlier in the month. We have a new travel gear tab which includes certain travel gears like backpacks, water bottles, chargers, stuff that Bob and I have, one of us has used or we really want and we highly recommend. And then we have a book a trip page, which is under construction. And by the time this comes out, hopefully we'll have some of these links active. And these are just our travel affiliates that have been on the podcast. So they have been vetted. We believe in them. And we think they are great resources for you to go on your next trip with. So that includes GJ Travel, which focuses on Iceland and Greenland, Lima Gourmet, which is the Peruvian cuisine in Lima, Trek Hoppers, which is in Peru and soon to be Colombia, and then Costa Costa, which does trips all over the Latin American continent. So that includes Cuba, uh, Colombia, and a few other places as well. So check that out. And we we appreciate you. If, if you book through them, we get a little bit. It helps us. It helps them. It helps you. Now for the trivia question. So the question for last week was, what title did Priya achieve in high school while participating in pageants? And the answer to this was Miss Teen Seattle, which was quite impressive. And if you got that right and you had emailed us at thetravelersblueprint.gmail.com, you will likely be getting a sticker from us if you were one of the first three or randomly selected. And... If you tune into the end of the episode for the question related to today's guest, also email us. Our email is on our website, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can direct message us on Instagram or Facebook. Now, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about our guest today? We had an incredible guest today. So our next guest, she's been writing for Lonely Planet for five years. She has a pas passion for astronomy and space tourism, and our conversation today focused on her book, Dark Skies, A Practical Guide to Astrotourism. Now, this guide is not what constellation you'll see, but rather the geographic locations on where to see them and a comprehensive overview of stargazing. We talked about outer space. We got into the potential for space tourism of the future and not so distant future and just had a, a ton of fun having, having this conversation. So without further introduction, Please welcome our next guest, Valerie Stimak. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Valerie, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So you reached out to us uh, late last year, I believe, and... We got to talking and you have a new book called Dark Skies, A Practical Guide to Astrotourism. I've got it right here. And it's, you paired up with Lonely Planet. You've done that before, correct? Yeah, I've actually been writing for Lonely Planet for five years now. Um, okay. And the, I should say like they hired me to write the book. Um, I proposed the idea and I wasn't sure if they would have me write it, but thankfully they chose me as the writer for that one. Oh, well, I think you did a phenomenal job. I love reading through it. Uh, I think it's very well organized. And I am I think I speak for both Bob and myself. We're very excited to share this with our audience. It was be a beautiful book too. 
I found yeah. myself I found myself like just staring at the pictures just as I would into the actual night sky. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't take the photos. I didn't choose the photos. I provided some light consultation on my preferences sometimes, but for the most part, that was all the design team at Lonely Planet, and they did an amazing job. They okay. most certainly yeah. did. So, yeah. as we start the episode, can you give us a little bit of a backstory of your work? You said you have been writing for Lonely Planet for five years. How did you end up at this point when you actually got to writing Dark Skies? Do you have a background in uh, astronomy or I mean, I don't want to say astrology, but some people, no, no. I'm okay. not, no, I'm not, um, I'm not one of those hard and fast um, anti-astrology people. I'm sort of, I, I have a, a hidden little op-ed still brewing inside of me about why I don't like that astronomers are so anti-astrology, but we won't get into that. <laughs> um, no, I don't have a background in astronomy. Um, my background, my academic background is in economics and psychology. Um, I have spent part of my career in both of those fields. I actually have master's degrees in psychology and in business. And I've worked in both of those fields since I got those master's degrees and all those student loans. Uh, (laughs) But I started travel writing because I love travel. I've um, always been a writer, always was sharing my own stories on the internet. Since about 2001, I've had various blogs. Thankfully, most of them are no longer online. Um, (laughs) And I started a travel blog in 2013. And um, I was pretty frustrated by about 2017 that I did not feel there were any, and this is an unfair assertion, but it was how I felt, um, that I didn't feel there were any more original stories to tell. I was feeling like it was very hard to find original stories to tell. And, you know, how many times can we talk about the best cafes in Paris and how to save money traveling in Southeast Asia? And that's what travel bloggers, um, unfortunately, I think that this is a fair, broad sweeping assertion. Um, A lot of travel bloggers, if you look at the whole industry, um, are just sort of regurgitating and repackaging, and there was not a lot of original contribution. So I started to think about, well, wh- where's next? You know, wh- Paris has, well, Paris has always been one of the top destinations in the world, but, you know, where's the next Prague? Where's the next um, adventure travel, budget travel? Like, what are the options to, to try and find a new place in the industry? And I settled on two options, um, deep sea and space. And what's funny is <clears throat> I'm afraid of deep sea, so I decided pretty quickly that wasn't the right one for me. But that has also been a rising field of tourism. In fact, there was a strangely a deep sea and space travel summit in Spain uh, a couple months ago. So there, these two uh, kind of extreme destinations are actually sort of getting paired up from time to time. So I settled in space and started researching and realized that there was um, we were about to have space tourism, and I put quote air quotes around that because uh, they've been saying that for over a decade now. Various people have been predicting it every year for 10 plus years. Um, Hey, if they keep predicting it, it, it's bound to come true. Eventually someone will accomplish it. And I'm predicting the 2020s that year. I'm not (laughs) the only one this year. There was a lot, a lot, a lot of travel professionals in the travel industry that are saying it looks like at least one of these companies that's in the field. And I think uh, your question suggests we'll come back to this, but at least one of them is going to make it this year. So started looking at space tourism and realized not only was there an opportunity to write there, but there was also an opportunity to write about space experiences on Earth. And as I started to research that, that's where this con- this concept, this term of astrotourism, I started seeing it popping up. It dates back to 2015, but by 2017, a couple more major publications had used it. And I started a website that was aiming to be the primary astrotourism resource on the internet. And that's our goal with that second website that I run. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. I, the the One of the quotes in your book that I really found profound, and it was like kind of like a light bulb went up in my head. It was like, you know, 
we are, me included, just focusing on the destination and we just forget to look up. And like, why? Why am I, why am I just realizing it? You know, how amazing the night sky is, how amazing outer space is. I don't, I'm just kind of dumbfounded that I never thought of it before. So in your experience with this, like, why, why hasn't this been a thing? Well, there's a couple of reasons I think people don't think of astrotourism as a driving factor. And I want to be clear that for anyone who's listening and is like, I've traveled for this reason, or I, you know, I've done these, I've traveled to go see a meteor shower, I've traveled for an eclipse. There's absolutely always been a contingent, a small contingent of super space nerds. And I use that term very affectionately because I consider myself one. Um, and these, these really, really passionate people have been willing to travel. This is the trend is only just gotten a name and a rise in popularity over the past few years. There has always been people willing to do it. Most of us, though, when we travel, one, we know nothing about the night sky because we live in very light, polluted urban areas. So when we go to a dark sky place, we don't have the confidence to go out and feel like we have an understanding or an, maybe even an appreciation. Um, though I would argue that the appreciation is intrinsic and dates back to our uh, ancestors millennia ago. Um, and the other is that often when we travel, we pack our days so full that even if we are in a dark sky place, by the time we get to night, we're just wrecked. And this is a funny thing is I, because I've started traveling this way professionally, I am burning the candle at both ends. I'm up shooting sunrise and taking a morning hike. And then I'm up all day doing all the fun things during the day. I think it's about 10 PM and I'm exhausted, but that's when my second half of my shift sort of begins and I would go out for a few hours and stand in the cold and watch the night sky and shoot photos and all that. So I think it's uh, just kind of a combination of the way we travel and the way we think about travel. But increasingly, there are good resources out there that are helping people realize that they should plan this in and allocate the right energy and research to enjoy the experience while they're there. Yeah. I remember growing up as a kid, my dad and I would every once in a while go to our neighborhood park at like every, uh, I think we did this two or three times, but it was during meteor showers and we would get up at like three or four in the morning, take a 15 minute walk to the park and then just like lie down in the field and just like count how many meteors we saw that night. And it was yeah. a really fond memory. And I think ever since then, and then, you know, in sixth grade, when everyone has their astronomy class with their sixth grade science teacher, it, it really sparked an interest that I didn't really follow up on. It, it just was always there. And I always paid attention to stars when I traveled, but I never got into detail with it. Like, I don't, I don't think I could point out individual planets if I saw them. I, I could probably point out Orion's Belt, the Big Dipper, <laughs> maybe the North Star, and obviously <laughs> the Sun. And the moon. Yeah. Those are the big yeah. ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, give, let's give our sun some credit. She is a star and she's just yeah. really, really close. Uh, and she obscures <laughs> everybody else when she's in the sky. Yeah. I mean, that's most people. And I'm the same way. I had an interest in this, in, you know, I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid who doesn't. Um, the only kids who don't are the ones who want to be marine biologists. And now they can go deep sea exploring. Right. Um, and, but I kind of just grew out of it. I got, you know, got distracted by teenage things and then college and then got a real job and all of those. Um, and, you know, it took a while for me to come back. But when I realized that I had this passion combined with this opportunity, that was, I was sold. I knew that this was what I wanted to work on. This is all amazing to me. I feel like a kid again in a way. So I've been obsessed with earth sciences my entire life. It's just been a, an incredible passion of mine, understanding animals and culture and traveling the world and geography and all these things. 
I'm like, this is new to me. And now <laughs> I'm just like, I, you know, I read your book and now I'm becoming obsessed. And I started watching like Cosmos and I'm like, you know, finding these shows on Netflix and I'm YouTubing, you know, about what happens when a star dies. And like, you, <laughs> you opened up my eyes to this new field. So I really want to thank you for that. And there's just, there's just so much to learn and it's so confusing and it, a lot of it's mind boggling. And it, to be able to, to find these locations throughout the planet, throughout my own country, and be able to just look up and then use the information that I read in your book and that I'm, and I'm, that I'm gaining by watching these videos is just, it's just blowing my mind. And I feel like I'm just entering this whole new chapter of what it means to be alive on this planet and appreciate what we have around us. Because for, for the longest time, I mean, literally my entire life, I've only, I've looked, I looked, I've looked what's on the ground and that's what I've learned to appreciate and love. And now and now I ha I have the night sky, which is endless, right? Yeah. You're welcome. So it's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I loved I loved your book. I've been kicking myself now because I've been to several of the locations that you've identified in your book and your book is great locations to stargaze, including uh, was it uh, Mauna Kea, uh, the Big Island of Hawaii. Mm -hmm which I've been to and I didn't go to the, the, to the observatory and now it, it seems to be like one of the best places to do it on the but planet. But now, now you know, you can't kick yourself for something you didn't know. Now you have that knowledge. Now you have to plan ahead. I know. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm reading it. And I'm like, I need to go back in time. I need to, well, I I need to. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we need. That's not possible. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I guess I'll have to go back. I'll give you a shameless plug. If anybody uh, checks out the book, if they're interested or they just want to learn more, I also contributed to a book. I wasn't the only writer, but I contributed to a book for Lonely Planet called The Universe. And it's the, it's a guidebook. It's much more like their traditional guidebook format um, to the entire universe from our planet all the way out to the deepest space objects and largest deep space objects that we've ever been able to observe. Ooh. So that's a nice foundation. If you If you find that you're really interested or someone you know really loves space, that's another new book. It came out a month after my book. And um, I wrote the sections on deep space objects, life and death of stars, interesting star systems. Um, so that's like the comets, next level. Like that. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 It's and it's but it also gives you a really solid. I mean, it's 600 pages. So I say it's a really solid foundation. It's a very comprehensive foundation um, for that astronomy side of astrotourism. Okay. So before we get into the real contents of the book, uh, one of the items in the forward that was written by, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but I'm going to try anyway, Phil Plate, yeah. uh, who goes by the nickname Bad Astronomer. He was talking about how when we travel to isolated places, the thing that people mostly think about is that we're getting away from it all. And the thing he points out, and kind of the irony in that is that when you get away from it all, when you get away from your work, when you get away from the busy metropolitan lifestyle, when you get away from your house and your car and all of the things that you own, and you go out into these isolated places and you look up at the star, you're actually more connected to everything than you were in your house. Mm -hmm. Because you can see everything. You can see infinitely more than you could just in your house. And you're more connected yeah. to the universe than at any other time. Yeah, it's a very, he did a very nice job with that introduction or that, for, I think they call it a foreword in the book. Um, and it was, it was wonderful to see because that was really the first sort of critical sort of review is the person who writes your foreword gets to see your book before anyone else other than you and your editor. And um, his words really did a lot of justice and uh, kind of hooked people in, in a way that I really, I really appreciate. Yeah, it was, it was a very nice forward. I can definitely agree with that. So 
as for the contents, a uh, quick breakdown. Your book goes into stargazing, which is essentially a an intro and a how-to, and then a little bit of astrophotography, and then citizen scientists, which is a term Bob and I have heard a lot recently. And then your second section is dark places, which are kind of literally just the places that are best for viewing the night sky. Uh, the third section is astronomy in action, what Bob missed out on in Mauna Kea, observatories, which are all over the world. I was, and I want to get back into that, but trying to find a good resource of where public observatories are located, especially near like me or Bob or any of our listeners. And then the last sections are meteor showers, auroras, eclipses, launches. And the one I'm really interested in uh, is spaceflight. Yep. We tried to cover a lot. I was very excited when they added spaceflight and space tourism because that's where my like my seed of being interested in the subject came from. Yeah, it's, oh man, traveling to Mars. I think that's going <laughs> to happen in our life. So to, to start us off, uh, can you just explain what tour, or I'm sorry, what stargazing is for our guests? Um, what stargazing is? Yeah, how would you define it? Um, star, so stargazing, to me, stargazing is a sort of a simple, it doesn't require any additional equipment or anything other, I think you quoted this when you sent me the questions, anything other than a night sky, a dark night sky. Um, it's going out to look up at the night sky and appreciate all of the stars and other objects that you can see. And so using that information, you essentially paired up with, with astrotourism, right? Doing your research and finding the actual locations that are ideal for stargazing. Exactly. Exactly. So to me, astrotourism is traveling to the places where you can enjoy those kinds of experiences. And then those last five items are essentially stargazing, but more specific things that you can see while stargazing. Yeah. I want to get into a discussion on dark sky compliance, which you talked about early in your book and how places are trying to become dark sky compliant. And there are designations for, I guess it started in 2008 or early 2000s for becoming dark sky sanctioned areas. Yes, absolutely. There's an association, there's several associations around the world. The most widely known one is based out of Tucson, Arizona. They're called the International Dark Sky Association, and they are the official sort of certification and accreditation body for dark sky preservation. So different destinations can use their guidelines to improve their dark sky quality. And and I can go into the details of that, but basically it means um, protecting what dark skies you have and improving the ones that aren't dark enough using light fixtures and other um, technology and then applying to the International Dark Sky Association to be accredited for the quality of the dark skies that they have. Okay. And I remember learning about this early on, and dark sky is essentially, you don't get a dark sky when you have light pollution. And 100 years ago, this wasn't, maybe 150 years ago, this really wasn't an issue. Everyone had access to the night sky, no matter where you lived. And everyone could visit it. But now 99% of the United States population where they live, they cannot see a really clear night sky. So they all have to travel. Yes. Yeah. Especially urban areas um, to, to define light pollution for those that obviously aren't familiar with the term. Um, very briefly, it means that the light um, is basically the, the photons are causing um, 
they're basically obscuring the night sky. Um, and it, that can, photons can interact with all kinds of different things to cause light pollution. Um, one of the big ones is the quality of the air. So we live in urban areas, the air quality is lower. Um, when light is shined up into that, it lights up whatever particulates are in the air and that interferes with your ability to see the stars. Okay. And the, I think one of the main things that made dark sky compliance popular is in South Carolina with the, uh, soft shell turtles on the beaches because yeah. Hilton head has actually one of the strictest dark sky compliance is one of the dark strictest dark sky compliance cities in the United States because of the, uh, soft shell turtles because they lay eggs in the sand. They require it to be dark. If it's not dark, they don't lay the eggs in the sand. And so there was a huge issue with the population down there. And so dark sky compliance is not just for seeing the stars, but also for natural wildlife around the areas. Yeah, Elliot. Including humans. We're yes. part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Have either of you watched Planet Earth 2 yet? Parts of it. That, that documentary. So, they, so one thing with cities, and one thing that they brought into that episode, which is extremely sad, I, there was a city in Asia where the turtles would hatch, and they typically, you know, they go directly into the water. But what they use to guide them into the water is the moon, the light of the moon. Directly behind them is a thriving city that is full of bright lights. The turtles are now turning around and just going right into the city, right into streets. They're being crushed, they're being killed. And it's the, the light pollution is actually, it's decimating the turtle population in some of these cities, which I found just, it's, it's sad. It's a very sad episode, but. Yeah, turtles are the most widely known um, sort of species or set of species that are affected by light pollution, but there are obviously so many other nocturnal species. I attended a symposium in Ireland a couple months ago, and the big one that people are talking about is bats, mm. um, because bats are pollinators. If bat um, feeding and mating behaviors are affected by light pollution, that can have a huge impact on the ecosystem because they're not doing their job to pollinate properly. Yeah. 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 And, we're impacting the, the Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the list. Jeez. Yeah, one more thing. <sighs> All right. So now to actual dark sky locations. The there's been a few, like Bob mentioned, that I've been to. Uh, the one that I actually haven't that's closest to me is Cherry Springs State Park in Pennsylvania. It's like two and a half hours north of me. And it's actually very close to where I went to school. And I had, I've never heard of it. I've never been there. And now it's on my list to go to this year. Yeah, that's um, one of my favorites in the book. It came from my editor, actually. She suggested that because it's really hard to find good pockets of dark sky on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and Canada because there's just a, a lot of big cities, a lot of light pollution, uh, and that's sort of this little pocket. And they were pretty early in the certification um, cycle, so they've been certified as a dark sky location for a while. And it really does draw a lot of travelers, especially around um, the meteor showers in the summer, any sort of celestial events. They have like a reservation system, and every they'll, they'll sell out all their campsites and all that. It's it's great. It's a nice little community that's built up there. Yeah, I think that I don't I don't remember where it was in your book, but you talk about these amateur astronomy clubs. So I started googling those. Yeah, yeah, and trying to find like some near me because I do. I think I'm going to take part in in stargazing in that park. Star parties is what they're called. Star, star parties. parties. I'm, I'm yes. totally going to a star party. Yeah, yeah. Bob, let's go. Yeah, well, we got to find one was, to go. In that section on that park, Cherry Cherry State Park, right? Cherry, Cherry Springs. Springs. Cherry Springs State Park. Didn't you say that you could see the the Northern Lights? Was that correct? Under the right conditions, um, and the right conditions being a night, a particularly clear, dark night, 
uh, during the right season when there's a lot of solar activity. So there's kind of a magic formula that needs to happen to see the aurora that far south. It is okay. possible. It's certainly, um, the geophysics make it possible, but it's not going to be common. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's still one of my goals is to see the aurora borealis and then the australis borealis. Mm-hmm. Um, the aurora australis. Aurora australis. That's it. Yeah. Where yeah. is the aurora australis? Southern hemisphere. Okay. Yeah. So australis. like, um, Really briefly jump in there. Uh, best places to go, Southern Island of New Zealand and Tasmania. Oh. Or Antarctica, obviously. <laughs> could could you break down your top three favorite places to stargaze in the United States? Oh, that's tricky. Personally, um, so I grew up in Alaska and that gives me, I feel very fortunate now that I look back. I think that's the foundation of my interest in astronomy is that I grew up in a place with pretty pristine dark skies in the winter, chances to see the aurora. Um, and so I would put Alaska on that list. I also include it because it's, you don't need a passport. It's relatively easy. It's relatively cheap, especially in the winter. In fact, I'm planning my own trip back to do some winter research and try and catch the aurora again uh, in February. Um, I would put the south, I'm going to speak very broadly, the southwestern United States. So southern Utah, um, Nevada, Southern California and the desert regions, Arizona, New Mexico, that whole area is relatively undeveloped, uh, great air quality because it's a desert, so it's very dry. There's not a lot of humidity that's going to interfere with your stargazing. So lots of national parks in that area. And then uh, I haven't been to these places during dark sky, like viewing events, um, but I know that they're good. The other one that I would throw in for people who are in the... Um, more of the Eastern U.S. would be Michigan, um, the Upper Peninsula, especially Northern Minnesota. But even as far as the northern tip of the Lower Peninsula of Michigan, there's a great dark sky park called Headlands International Dark Sky Park. And they do see the aurora quite regularly um, in the winter months. So that's a great one. If you are able to make a trip, it's definitely a journey (laughs) because there's no major city or airport in the area. And that's part of what makes it a great destination. Nice. So Sleeping Bear Dunes is close to Headlands, isn't it? Okay. Um, it's at the bottom end of Michigan down. Well, no, you're right. Sorry. I've actually been to sleeping bear dunes. Yeah. I've been out camping on some of the islands in the, from that area. Okay. All right. I, I know of sleeping bear dunes and that was the only like thing that I know up in the Northern part of the lower peninsula. Yeah. And you can, you can definitely do stargazing from there as well. Sweet. And I had no idea that I could see the potentially see the Aurora in Pennsylvania. No, no, that's, I couldn't, I read it a few times. I was like, wait, is this, is, is this right? I, I had no idea, but it seems like it's, the chances are slim. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and now, Bob, maybe that New Zealand, Australia trip in 2021 could include Tasmania. Yeah, it could. Yeah. And uh, t- Tasmania is great because, um, because of its location on the planet, it's actually one of the few places that you can potentially see the aurora year round during the right solar conditions. Ah. Um, most other places are affected by seasonality and axial tilt, which is how much earth is tilted in space. Um, that's what creates our seasons and it changes light throughout the year. You know, too much science, but basically Tasmania is a great place to go try and see the Aurora in, in almost the whole year. No, I know, I know to see the Northern lights in like, um, Iceland and Canada and things like that, you have to, it needs to be winter time. Mm -hmm. Does it need to be their winter, Australia's winter to actually see these? Um, in New Zealand, yeah, winter is better. Tasmania, there's a little more flexibility. You could be potentially seeing it in the spring or the autumn and in, even toward the summer months because they don't, the, the aurora happen year round. You just can't see them because of the light. 
Um, so Canada, Iceland, Alaska, they get, there's a lot more daylight in the summer months. So that's what's interfering with your ability to see the aurora. Okay. I'm learning so much right now. I know. I know. <laughs> I was really, so I was supposed to go to Iceland last August and due to some, you know, medical mishaps on my part, uh, I was not able to go. I had a lung collapse, so I wasn't able to fly. And I think we're going to try to reschedule it for this year, but we were scheduled to do it in, I think I said August and there was almost no chance to see the Aurora, but the person that we had been talking to that is, that does tours through Iceland, he recommended spring or fall to kind of get the best of both worlds in Iceland. So you get a little bit of summer and a little bit of the Aurora. And I think if we were to reschedule it, it would be for those times so that obviously ideal situation would be go twice, once in summer and once in winter, but yeah, way, it'd be I, fun. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm not as firm on the science of exactly why this is the case, but Aurora activity is best viewed around the equinoxes. So that would be like March 20th to 21st and September 20th to 21st. I'm reading a book right now about astronomy and I'm hoping that this, this question that I have will be answered so I can explain why, but I'm guessing it's to do with tilt seasons, um, the, the, the way that our magnetosphere is tipped toward the sun. I, I'm guessing that's oh, the foundation. Wow. And I'm sure someone will comment correcting me on that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize it was that complicated because, yeah, I didn't. So does the actual magnetosphere shift? I know it, it moves a little bit depending on like solar activity too. So the magnetosphere, um, it does. It kind of moves throughout the day as the sun moves around. Um, but there's like these ho holes, I don't want to call it like, there's like funnels where yeah. the solar wind can get in. And I think it has to do with the, the way that that's tipped at those certain times of the year that it catches more. I'm, that's okay. my hypothesis. That sounds It's that a little, like good. you said earlier, it's mind boggling. Sometimes you're like, I need a degree in this to understand the science of how this works. You yeah. really do. Well, that's, I mean, like I said, I was, I've been fascinated with earth, earth sciences my entire life, which is cut and dry. The science is very cut and dry. It's very easy to understand the, the physics, the, the biology. It's all right there. It's, it's easy to follow. But now, now I'm like, I'm watching like YouTube videos on the death of stars and I'm, I need to rewatch the one. I found one that I really enjoyed. I, I just want to be able to understand black holes. That's all, that's all I want. <laughs> okay. I, mean, yeah, yeah, that's, I, I just finished uh, Steve Hawking's book, uh, Simple Answers to Big Questions or something like that. That didn't help because that, <laughs> that dude was just hard to follow. So um, the, simple, the simple answer to all questions is, we don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's not true. I mean, we know. We know. We do. Yeah. But the we fact that we, we have really strong hypotheses. That's what yeah, I right, right. The fact that we are able to image a black hole in 2019 Mm -hmm. It's like the biggest step to confirming that black holes exist because mm -hmm. it didn't have hypothesized for like 40 years, oh, sorry, 100 to 200 years that mm -hmm. they existed. And now it is factually confirmed. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for the longest time, I thought a black hole was a vacuum. <laughs> I, I, I just, that's just like my, what I thought. Um, yeah, it's just kind of, yeah, know, it's it, upside it still down. blow my mind. I kind of have, I have this little section in my brain where I just put all the things that are too big for me to understand and I let right. them sit yes. there and I don't worry about that. Like I, <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to solve those problems. My job is to get people to go out and see the night sky. Cause one of these <laughs> kids, I'm confident one of these kids is going to be the one that solves all these big problems. We just yeah. need to inspire them. And the night sky is very good at that. Yes. Yes. I, I saw somewhere, a uh, a little infographic about, what happened in 2019 related to the earth or sorry, our universe. And it was just like these four statistics and I don't remember all of them, but I remember one was the Andromeda galaxy moved like 3.8 billion mile or light years closer to us. No, it was 3.8 million. One more time. 
3.8 billion miles, which isn't really that close, but in, <laughs> <laughs> in the grand scale of things, in I think it was like 10 billion years, they showed what the night sky would look like with the Andromeda galaxy overlaid on the Milky Way galaxy. And it, it looks so cool. And then the other thing was that the universe expanded by like 160 trillion light years. Wow. Too yeah. big to wrap my head around. Right. Yeah. I said, well, what's at the end of it? Uh, what's it expanding into? <laughs> we Into another universe. <laughs> that that like, was actually my first thought was the multiverse. Like we're just going to collide with another universe. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's something Neil deGrasse Tyson has talked about, like the multiverse theory. Essentially, it's like, you know, we, there's there's billions of solar systems within our galaxy and then there's billions of galaxies within the universe so why wouldn't there be billions of universes within the whatever it is um that we don't know but where does it stop does it stop that's does it matter it it, not to me well it does i want to know but it's not gonna matter in my lifetime but like did it's the same thing like did does time begin and does time stop Here's, These are really big questions. <laughs> here's something interesting. Uh, when we're able to travel at light speed, if we ever get to a point where we can travel at light speed, when you leave this planet and you travel at light speed, it's going to feel like a very short amount of time to you, but it'll be a very long time for the people on Earth. So how much, how much would these people age in 10 minutes of yeah. traveling at light speed? And then when you come back, they could be 30 years older when you were only gone for 20 minutes. Yeah. One of my favorite books about this, and I think I was always interested in sci-fi, so if people are looking for some fiction reading, um, I love the Rama series by Arthur C. Clarke as a kid, Um, but I also read uh, the Ender's Game series, and as that series wears on, some of the books are not as strong as others, but they do a really nice job of talking about how um, high-speed travel, high-speed space travel, and the changes that happen at home, you know, there's kind of the there's like a split in that book universe where some of the characters go off and start traveling to other planets and some of them stay home on earth. And so the timeline of the second branch of the story is like 70 years. And the timeline of the branch of the first stories is like 70 billion years. And it's, it's very fascinating when you try and think, well, what's happening back on earth now, you know, with one character versus the other. Whoa. The one, the one movie that I thought did an interesting job at trying to touch on these sci-fi physics and time and space was interstellar yeah it's a good movie and that is actually confirmed so i was talking to my sister over the holiday season and she and i both love physics science math all of these really interesting things and talking about you know pie in the sky stuff um but she had read recently that people that live at higher gravity so closer to sea level or below sea level live longer and time is slower than people that live at less gravity so higher in the mountains and it's relative so like someone that lives in the mountains versus someone that lives in uh you know at sea level in like miami the time is still the same point but the person in miami has just aged less Hmm. well we all equalize that by traveling right that's the goal (laughs) for like the average (laughs) yeah i just thought it was it was really cool to she always has some cool fact that was hard to wrap my head around to be honest yep Um, (laughs) so so getting back getting back to your book uh, yeah we took a really big tangent there what i want to talk about you broke down some of the ways people who are stuck in urban areas which is a humongous amount of the population can at least attempt to stargaze without traveling too far for me and elliot um 
I live right outside of Philadelphia. He's right outside of Harrisburg. I have New York two hours away, DC. I'm in New Jersey, which is like the most uh, densely populated state in the entire country. I, I never see the night sky ever. I never, I, I mean, since I've read your book, I've tried. It's just non-existent. I just won't be able to do it here. But there are some tips and tricks on how people can at least see some of it. And could you just break some of those methods down for us, please? Sure. So the very first thing I advise people to do if they want to do urban, I call it urban stargazing. So you're trying to stargaze in a relatively urban environment. First thing I would do is I would Google and look for any local astronomy clubs and see if they are either hosting an event or if they share the locations where they have their events, because location is a pretty critical component to your ability to see the night sky. If you have a backyard and you go out, you kind of know what you can see and you can, you can make small improvements to try and improve the quality of the night sky and your experience of it. But uh, it's really going to, if you can get to a location within an hour, preferably two hours, that's darker, that will have a much more dramatic impact than anything else you can do to try and go stargazing. Once you find a location, even if it is your backyard, there's two things that I would do. Um, I would block any light that's coming into the area where you are going to be standing and trying to observe the night sky. So if you have a Let's say you have a backyard, it's fenced off. So the nice thing is the fence and the trees around your yard block the light from your neighbors, but you have a light on the back of your house. We well, you need to turn that off because um, those that light pollution is very bright right where you are. And what you need to do is create a little pocket of dark sky where you can reduce the light pollution and also allow your eyes to adjust. That's the other thing that I would work on is you need to find a dark place where it's dark enough that your eyes can adjust, which takes a minimum of 15 to 20 minutes. And once your eyes adjust, your pupils will dilate and that will allow you to see more of the light that is in the night sky, aka the stars, than if you just, if you're looking at your phone and then you look straight up, you really can't see anything. So you're, you need to create the conditions and then allow the time to pass so that your eyes can adjust and you have a little bit more protection from other light that would pollute and affect your vision so you can go stargazing. Okay. And one of the things in your book that you recommended if you need light is to use red light. Mm -hmm. because it yeah. affects your eyes differently than white or blue light. Correct. Yeah. It does not cause your eyes to dilate the same way. So I always travel with red flashlights. Um, you can buy them on Amazon or they recommend, like if you have flashlights at home, you can buy red um, cellophane tape or cellophane, you know, like what's it called? Saran wrap. Yeah, <laughs> saran wrap. Yeah. Saran wrap. Um, you can put red saran wrap in like a rubber band and that will also be enough to reduce the impact of using that light to be able to see. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. And and then, do, and, do you recommend using like uh, telescopes at all in your backyard? Um, sure. If you're passionate enough to make the investment, uh, it's, it's usually, you know, the more you're willing to pay, the better the quality of the improvement the telescope will give you because um, size matters, quality of lenses matter a lot, um, stability of the, the whole system. Stability literally meaning how stable is it when you touch it? Does it wobble like crazy? Because mm. if it does, the stars are going to wobble. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and that's a that's a matter of whether or not you want to make that kind of investment. That's why I advise actually starting with an astronomy club, because if they're hosting an event and it's within the distance you're willing to travel, which may be an hour or so, they are going to probably have those pieces of hardware that will open up the wonders of the night sky even more. And you won't have to make that investment or try and learn how to, you know, to calibrate your telescope and all those things. Okay. So one of my cousins that I got to see over the holiday, he works at, he works part-time at an observatory, which I thought was really cool. So we started talking about your book and what he's doing at the observatory in uh, Virginia. And he's been doing that for, uh, I think, since last year. And he loves it. He 
had been kind of an amateur astronomer at home. He had this telescope and he actually got some really cool photos of the eclipse in the summer of 2017 from his home telescope that he wasn't able to get at the telescope at the observatory because he had a special filter to see. And he, he absolutely loves it. He loves talking to people about the night sky, teaching them how to, you know, view stuff, what to look for. And one of the things I want to get into with you is simply what can you see at night without, without any equipment whatsoever? Yeah, um, that's a big question. Not as big as the ones about time and space and the nature <laughs> of the universe, but um, there's a lot. There's actually a lot you can see. So starting with the basics, um, there are planets. That, well, there's the moon. Let's start with the moon. She's wonderful. She's overlooked and underappreciated the moon. Um, however, the moon can cause light pollution. So if you really want a nice dark sky experience, take a look at the moon phase and don't go stargazing on the week surrounding the full moon because the moon is just going to blow out anything in its vicinity and you won't be able to see it. Um, so you can, you can't, but you can stargaze at the moon. Um, a lot of people, when they buy a telescope, their first telescope, that's the main thing that they look at. And you can get a sense of craters and all kinds of cool features on the moon with a, where the, with a telescope, but also with your eyes or a pair of binoculars. Um, there's planets. So we can see from Earth, we can see Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus. The only planet we cannot see with our eyes is Neptune. But I'll caveat that Uranus is very hard to see with your unaided eye. So uh, it takes very special conditions, really dark skies on certain night when the alignment of planets and sun are all perfect. Okay. Um, Isn't Mercury yeah. really difficult to see as well? Yeah, Mercury, because Mercury is so close to the sun, um, you're typically not going to be, you're typically going to stargaze for Mercury or planet gaze for Mercury in the evening hours just after sunset or the pre-dawn hours just before sunrise. And there are okay. certain days of the year where Mercury kind of reaches its high, they call it highest point in the sky before the sun rises and just obliterates your ability to see anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's planets. Um, you can obviously see lots of stars. And when we say stars, I mean, broadly speaking, you can see single stars, variable stars, binary stars, multiple star systems. Um, stars come in all sorts of varieties. And that's uh, very interesting is that we look at some stars and we think, wow, that star is really bright. Well, it's not just one star. There's multiple stars there. Um, you can see different types of stars. So you can see... Um, I think they call us a yellow dwarf. Our sun is a yellow dwarf. So you can see yellow dwarfs like our sun. You can see red giants. You can see hypergiants, uh, all kinds of different stars of different ages and different colors. Uh, you can see nebula. Um, so that is generally, generally defined as sort of star nurseries where stars are being born. You can see star clusters, which are gravitationally bound groups of stars. You can see those with your unaided eye. A great example, I think, I think the Pleiades are technically an open star cluster, which is not the same thing as a globular star cluster. Anyway, you can see different sorts of clusters of stars that come all together. You can see uh, galaxies. So with the unaided eye, you can see the Andromeda galaxy and under very good conditions, the Triangulum galaxy, which is a neighboring, those are two of our closest galaxies. Okay. But in the Southern Hemisphere, you can also see the Magellanic Clouds. And there's one more galaxy that I do not know the name of. There's one more, there's several more down, down south that you have a better view of um, okay. that are ga actual galaxies that are outside of the Milky Way. And you can see the Milky Way. You, in, yeah. in, uh, in the summer months, in the dark sky, you can see the beautiful band of light and dust that form our part of the galaxy. That's, that's something that's high on my bucket list is seeing that extension of the Milky Way galaxy. And Luckily, it's not going anywhere. <clears throat> no, it's not. It's not. And For if a it while. Is, we're, we're, well, we're going there with it, right? So <laughs> um, where would you recommend doing this? Can you do it anywhere with a dark sky? 
under certain conditions or is there a certain position on the planet that you need to be in to see this extension of the, the Milky Way? You can see the Milky Way anywhere that's dark um, under the right conditions. Um, the, the Unfortunately, sort of uh, from our perspective on the Northern Hemisphere, the best time of year is the summer, which if you live too far north, you're going to have uh, the changing light over the course of the day is going to interfere with your ability to see the Milky Way. So for example, Alaska, um, in the summertime, you're not going to see the Milky Way very much. Uh, if you do want to see the Milky Way, I would recommend heading south um, into the southern hemisphere nearish the equator. So I went to the Elke Valley, which is a dark sky place in Chile. And the, the southern part of the hemisphere, the southern part of the planet sees a part of the Milky Way that is very different than what we think of when we, when we are no as northern hemisphere dwellers. It's much more dramatic and dynamic. There's a big dust cloud that obscures part of the Milky Way. And so there's this beautiful contrast and shapes that appear in the Southern Milky Way that you really can't see from the Northern Milky Way. And I use Southern and Northern, not really geographically, but from where we are on the planet. Okay. The one thing that I, I stumbled upon the Milky Way when I traveled to Tanzania in college, um, I was there for summer for a like six week study abroad. And we were very rurally located next to this mountainous national park and we had basically bathrooms that were outhouses separated from the residences and so every time you would walk out you would just see the sky and i think it was maybe the after the first week when you started to really pay attention to the night sky it was when we all realized that holy cow we can see the milky way and then i tried you know without any experience whatsoever tried to take a photo of it and it just came out super noisy <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's pretty normal <laughs> but it was it was incredible and that's one of the reasons why i still like when you when we saw this in our email we're like oh this is gonna be so much fun can't wait a we couldn't wait to read it and b we couldn't wait to talk to you about it right yeah. And now I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to get yes. this new knowledge. I mean, as anywhere I go, I think from this point on, I'm going to and trying to incorporate or research whether or not there's a dark sky nearby, whether or not there's a location that I can stargaze, what I can see in the night sky at the time of year I'm traveling to that location. This just added so much to my travel planning, you know, in, into the future. And so, uh, but then, yeah, I like, I, uh, I drove by like Craters of the Moon National Park, just drove by it. It was beautiful. Didn't think of it. I've driven across the desert. I've driven across Nevada and Utah at night. <laughs> I could have just gotten out of my car and just looked up. And, you know, those are all, I just need to let, you know, the past be the past and move on with my life. But I'm just, I'm still kicking myself because I just didn't realize that this was. Well, depending on the nature of time, these things may be corrected in other multiverses. Yeah, me in the in the multiverse, in the other universe is loving stars. You know, he's known about it forever. Yeah, you, you <laughs> yeah. may be living on a different planet. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I Go ahead, Bob. I was just going to jump into the next subject. So if you'd tell me well, that for this subject. I Well, I just, not necessarily this subject, but I want to backtrack a little bit because I had two questions that were kind of things for our audience one is and i don't know how many people are familiar with it i assume many but i still think it's really cool that the moon doesn't actually emit light it's just a reflection of our sun's light on earth and yep, I'm just, it's like a mirror it's so cool <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and and really cool little fun fact if you're out moon gazing um not during crescent moons you actually have to have some light on the moon but you can see oh what's it called earth shine which is the light from Earth 
reflecting off the moon on the dark parts of the moon from our perspective. Ah. So when you look out at a crescent moon and you can see obviously the light, the bright yeah. band of the crescent, but you can also see the rest of the moon's face. That's because of the light that we produce as a planet. Oh, that's Whoa. so much cooler. Whoa. I just I thought I knew that. Yeah. And, and wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out was the Milky Way. A lot of the Milky Way, there are some parts of it that are like gaseous and dusty, but the part that makes it look milky is just the fact that there are billions of stars, maybe even trillions of stars in it that are just so closely grouped together that it looks like uh, just a homogenous swath of something. And from other planets, milky. we're part of that. Yeah. Right, right. Ah, so uh, life cool. is out there. Anyway, <laughs> life is out there. It has to be. It has it's got to be. Been, it's a mathematical inevitability. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Uh, now I will allow you to transition. Space tourism. I let's let's talk about it. <laughs> I like that <laughs> little shorter wiggle. Elon Musk. He's uh he's making. Is that your guy? Is that the guy that's going to do it? No. Okay. No. So you can't. So you can't. You can't see if my background on my computer is Elon, and one of my backgrounds on my phone is Elon. So I am a firm Elon okay. fan. I'm a okay. firm Elon believer. I believe Elon is shaping the future. Um, but his focus is not on tourism, and I do not have a problem with that. Um, I'm with you on that. He, he is trying to save humanity by creating us by making us a multi-planetary species. The piece of tourism that is occurring through SpaceX as a company is only, I, I would say, only at the convenience of funding research flights. So this Dear Moon project where this Japanese billionaire has paid to fly eight people around the moon, they need to do a test flight anyway with humans. Why not let somebody pay them a lot of money to do that? That helps fund the cost of the mission. Mm. So I think that when you see, and I, I got kind of annoyed because there was a big headline last this past week about how Elon Musk and Richard Branson are driving space tourism forward. And I was like, no, Elon is not doing that. Richard Branson, absolutely. And I think he's going to be the first one to accomplish it. But Elon is just sort of this uh, like extraneous thing that might happen, but it's not at all the focus of that company or yeah. of his mission. And anybody who's on the mission with, like on the mission, meaning um, his life mission <laughs> on that mission with him. Yeah. So I, uh, Elon is sending uh, Matt Damon to Mars, right? Yes, and, uh, and hopefully he's the there. one who get him back for a lot less than it costs in the movie. <laughs> yeah. By yeah. the way, another fun space trivia. If people who are listening love The Martian, Audible just released a version of The Martian that's narrated by Will Wheaton from Star Trek. Oh. It's fantastic. I am listening awesome. to it. That's <laughs> awesome. There you go. That's another space nerdy thing. My dad is a huge space guy and a Star Trek guy, so uh, he's gonna, I'm going to tell him that as soon as I get off this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> So what is your thought, though, on the future of space tourism? I know you said that you think it is likely or, or it could be likely for 2020. That's, yeah. that's now. Um, that's, that's officially now. Four yeah, days yeah, in at the point of yeah. time of recording. Yeah. So, so can, you just, can you just explain that further, what your, actual, what your ideas are, what you're thinking might happen or will happen? Yeah, and, and I, I obviously may be incorrect. There are a lot of things that can affect the timeline of space tourism. Um, but what we've seen are very good indicators for space tourism happening this year. And um, I want to be, I want to clarify, I like to clarify a lot because there's a lot of ways to interpret this data and there's, everybody has a different level of knowledge. And so there are people who are going to be listening who are way more knowledgeable about this subject than I am. But when I talk about space tourism, I'm typically just speaking about Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. So Richard Branson's company, Virgin Galactic, Jeff Bezos, aka the Amazon founder, his company, Blue Origin. And 
Um, what we've seen are really, really good signs from both of those companies that they are pretty much ready to take paying passengers to space. So um, Virgin Galactic, they had been doing test flights at Mojave. Um, they sent up their seat. I think her title is like senior astronaut experience manager or something like that. Her name's Beth Moses. Um, she was the first non-pilot passenger to go on one of their flights. She went last year, several months ago now. And so they have technically sent a civilian to space already, but she wasn't a paying customer. And that's sort of the, the bar that we want to get to. Um, and then after the, that flight with her, they actually started moving their operations to Spaceport America in New Mexico, which is their primary launch facility for space tourism. So they have started moving all their offices and they've got their beautiful astronaut and family experience lounge and like all of those. They are they look like they're about to open a hotel for space travel. Like that's sort of what it's looking like. Um, and then Blue Origin has been very quietly because um, their, their mission in their motto as a company is to move quietly and slowly and make sure you do the work correctly. They have been quietly and successfully doing multiple test flights of their suborbital rocket system and um, capsule, which would take paying passengers. So I think Blue Origin is probably going to surprise people when they do it, whereas Virgin Galactic will be very bombastic and like this is a big event because that's just the way those founders are. Those two separate men are very different in the way that they uh, announce things um, and celebrate uh, milestones. But I, I see really healthy indications that they both have their technology is solid, the reusability, the reliability, these things that um, in the space industry are very, very important. Those all seem to be looking like they're lined up at this point. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't realize it was that close. I thought it was still a few years out. See. Um, and that's that's just for suborbital travel, not correct. orbital travel or moon travel or interplanetary travel. Can you explain what suborbital travel is? Please. Yeah, so so um, suborbital travel just means you are going up to space or to the edge of space, and then you're coming right back down. You're not necessarily making orbits of the planet. Um, and the best way that I can remember this is that Alan Shepard was the first uh, man to do a suborbital flight in the United States, and Blue Origin's suborbital rocket is called New Shepard. John Glenn was the first man to make an orbital flight, and their second rocket, which does orbital trajectories, is called New Glenn. So New Shepard and New Glenn, and that sort of tells you the differences between them is what those men did on their flights is what Blue Origin's rockets do, and that's the difference between them. So essentially this this flight or this trip would consist of you just going up to the outer edges of our atmosphere, maybe lingering for a little bit, admiring the planet, admiring the 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 universe, the moon, and then coming back down. Correct. Do you have an idea of what this is going to cost out of the gate? Yes. Yes, a lot currently. Um, yeah, so both companies, both of those companies, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, have sold tickets. And from what we know, Virgin Galactic was more public about it. Um, it ranges between two hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand dollars per person. Okay. All right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna and then, read it out. I think you have you have two more in your book: the Zero to Infinity and Worldview Enterprises, which are significantly less, about half half as much for Zero to Infinity, and then a quarter as much for worldview, almost a quarter. Yeah. And unfortunately, this section, basically, as soon as we finished it and handed it over to the designers, it was out of date. <laughs> um, so oh, okay. worldview, they switched, they have a new CEO and that CEO has sort of um, in both pub like publicly stated and implicitly through the company policy said that space tourism is not a priority for them. They are launching a lot of weather balloons and a lot of other payloads. So both of those companies, the reason they're cheaper is they use balloons to lift a capsule and drop down instead of rockets or, or planes, space planes. Um, and then Zero to Infinity, they, they right now, and 
a lot of companies in space tourism, the space tourism industry have failed a lot. Uh, they have persisted so far, but they also haven't done what they said they would do, which is sending people to space in their capsule with their balloon tech. So um, they're one I've been following. They're based in Spain and I'm, I see, you know, less, I don't think there's any issues, but less of the positive indicators that they are right on the edge of making these launches than Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic. Okay. At what point do you think the cost to, you know, for an average traveler would would the prices come down enough to like say twenty five thousand or even ten thousand for someone like ten years maybe? I think I think for those prices you're looking a little longer, probably twenty to thirty years. Okay. Um, and that's primarily because the barriers to entry in the space aerospace industry are so high. So while we have two great companies that are building reusable rockets, it has taken them billions of dollars and decades, really, at this point to accomplish that. That level, that barrier to entry from a market standpoint means that for any other companies to enter the market is going to require a lot of resources. For companies to stay in business, they have to recoup those resources, which means they have to charge people a lot of money. This is where my economics background comes in handy. Thank goodness. (laughs) Um, So I think you'll see, I think you'll see ticket supply and demand are going to kind of control the pricing for a while. And I like to think of it like Antarctica or Everest, though obviously Everest has issues with allowing too many people to go and driving costs down by increasing supply, which is creating a lot of dangerous situations on that mountain. But I think I think Antarctica is a good example that it over time, there was a snowball effect of more, more cruise companies being able to go down there and um, regulation was quite loose for a while. And so a lot of people were able to go and it drew the cost down. I think you'll see a very similar trajectory if you map out the cost to get to Antarctica with the cost of space tourism at a slightly higher scale. Like it's going to be, it's always going to be more than going to mm-hmm. Antarctica, but it's at least going to be, it will come down. I'm very confident in that. Okay. Interesting. So are you guys ready for a thought-provoking statement? Just something that I, I want to add to this conversation. Um, so I was reading and, and talking with coworkers, and <clears throat> there's this theory that up until this point in human history, we have always had the capability capability to explore and to adventure around the planet. And it kind of kept us um, at bay. It gave us a mission. It gave us purpose. Humans were were adventuring to to new worlds and new continents and it gave us kind of a reason to be now that doesn't exist with the exception of the ocean which is extremely hard to actually visit we're at a point in human history that we've we've covered every corner of the globe um we saw everything there is to see and we're doing everything we can really do now without venturing into outer space which seems to be our only option at this point there's a theory that we would turn on each other where we go back to conflict and we'd try to reconquer land and it would just be cataclysmic for for human civilization. Do either of you have thoughts on this? Like, do you think that's real? Do you think if we do not expand into the universe that we would implode in a way as a civilization? Is that- Uh, Yeah, that sounds like a reasonable, to me, that sounds like a reasonable theory of the future. And I think that's, um, I think part of the reason that's the case is that um, our resources are constrained on this planet. Not that we have a guarantee that there are the resources we need on other planets, but technology will eventually solve these problems. Obviously, talking about Star Trek, you know, replicators and blah blah blah. Um, but we have too many people on this planet. Um, if we get into ecology and we talk about carrying capacities, we yes. are clearly beyond the carrying capacity of this planet. And when you have to fight over resources like water 
and air and land, there is an inevitability for conflict. I mean, that's just that, that's just the way it's going to be because there's there's too many people. Um, I I will be curious to see because it's just we just sort of have to hypothesize what the technology will be that will solve these problems if we go other places. And the Martian is a great example because he actually like grows food on Mars, and that's so cool. The science was solid, right? He with the right sort of starter um, resources, he was able to create a self-sustaining food ecosystem. But there's no place like home. And so I don't know, I, I don't know that we'll ever solve the problem of human conflict and fighting over this primary planet, but it would certainly relieve some of the pressure on the system to start expanding outward. Yeah, I agree. And the, the classic carrying capacity are in biology, there's the links in the hair relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's, I forget what the actual relationship is called, but essentially as the lynx population goes up, the hair population declines. And as the hair population declines, there's not enough food to sustain the lynx population. So the lynx population dies back again. And then the hair population increase increases because the lynx population is decreased. So it's that fluctuation. But since humans don't have a natural predator, our natural predator is ourselves. And we will get to the point, I think, where we are reducing our own population, whether willingly or by conflict, and then the carrying capacity, our population will decrease. And then we'll either get into that cycle, or we will have an interplanetary system where we do not have to fight. Yeah. Go ahead. I I, I was just going to, and it's kind of like an additional tangent, a tangent of a tangent, but um, I was reading something that it would be amazing to get to a point where we were in an interplanetary species and we would sort of move industry from planet earth onto mars or onto an asteroid or a comet and use those you know those pull those resources and extract them and bring them down to earth and kind of zone earth as residential so to speak yeah. and have it residential like commercial yeah like yeah yeah a residential commercial and just move industry and move that pollution to other planets and yeah i mean that's what kind yeah. of what we did on earth initially is when we had when europeans had settled in and they had their stuff pretty much down. They transitioned industry to, you know, developing countries. And the U.S. did the same thing. Like, we don't really have a ton of industry in our country anymore. It is now in developing worlds or secondary countries. And I think this is sort of a theme that I want to bring up um, that is is relevant to space tourism, especially tying it back into that is the other thing we we kind of you know we talk about the future and it's exciting to hypothesize and we forget that like we're we're literally burning our species off of the planet right now um it's very clear that the environment and the and the climate is in a very unhealthy place and it's a it's obviously i mean the australian wildfires which are still burning as we are just talking um are just decimating whole species right like that there is no alternative for these species um, including humans. We are one of these species and we tend to forget that. And I, I, when I was on the radio interview, I was telling you guys about before we started recording, um, someone called in and asked about climate change because space tourism is a very heavy impact on the climate. And I do not, I, I believe that that is a very important counterpoint that we should always keep in mind. In, actually, please, let's keep it in point, in, that point in mind at all times when we discuss travel, because travel is a generally a luxury that does have an, a huge impact on the environment. Um, one of the things I think that won't bring space tourism costs down as low is I hope, and this is a critical point for us as consumers to make to companies that want to do this, you must be carbon offsetting. This is no longer an option. If you are operating in a high carbon output industry, 
we as consumers should require that that's part of it. So if I have to pay $10,000 extra to offset my trip, if presumably I have enough to pay for one of these tickets, I have enough to pay to offset my trip. But we, we as consumers, as an industry develops, especially in tourism, we should realize the power that we have to change the travel industry and to change that, especially space travel, to not make the problem worse because it's, it's not getting better on its own and governments are not, don't seem to be willing to take the stand that they need to. So it's going to have to be private companies and private individuals as a movement trying to save our primary home residential planet. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great point. Yeah. Sustainable. Yeah. Sustainability is like the, the other huge, huge thing that people are talking about this year. That's actually our conversation tomorrow. We're talking with a uh, sustainable development with a UN journalist. Nice. Very nice. It's, it's all, it's critically important across the board. And I welcome the criticism and discussion of how we solve those problems in space travel and astrotourism. 100% happy to talk with anybody who wants to talk about it. Well, speaking of which, what is the best way to reach you in terms of social media, websites, blogs, other books that you have? And where's yeah. listen to buy your books? Yeah. So Dark Skies is available from Lonely Planet. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major online retailers, as far as I know. And you can buy signed copies on my website, which is Space Tourism Guides spacetourismguide.com. That is one of the best ways to reach me. It's also a great resource if you want to see. We do this series I call City Stargazing Guides. So I have um, how to go stargazing from Philadelphia, how to go stargazing from New York City, all kinds of guides like that, Um, as well as a lot of other resources on seeing the aurora and eclipses and um, the best astronomical events of the year and all these kinds of interesting things people might want to know. Uh, I'm very active on Twitter at V Stimic. Oh no, Twitter is Valerie underscore Valise, which is my travel blog. And then I'm also on Instagram at V Stimic. I've got too many different names. I've got to get that sorted. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, it has been an incredible time talking to you. And like I already mentioned, I learned so much and you really opened up my eyes to this new form of tourism. And I think you're going to inspire a new Thank generation. You. People, people just, you know, if you're listening to this, just look up. <laughs> get out and look up. That's uh, my no. yeah. Get out. That's the important part. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Be outside. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's great. Go ahead. It's not. It's not something extra you have to pay for. It's just you're doing. You're going on a trip. Just look up while you're there. Mm-hmm. I have a joke that there's a a fantastic marketing campaign in the wings. Um, Americans are notorious for not taking enough vacation days. So stop wasting your vacation days. Well, how about stop wasting your vacation nights? If you're going to these places, you're going to the national parks and you know, you're supporting our natural resources that we have in this country, just spend an hour out at night and you'll be astonished at what you see. And hopefully it will inspire you to protect this really great place that we get to call home. Yes, I, I, I cannot agree more. And I won't waste any more nights. I, I, already, no. I already have. And <laughs> moving forward, I'm going to take full advantage of these the times that I do get out in dark sky locations because they don't happen often. My, like I said, my normal life is, I mean, right in dead smack in New Jersey slash Philadelphia. So when I have the opportunity to venture to these places, I'm going to take, take full advantage. Yeah. And in preparation for our talk uh, last night, I was taking my dog out to use the restroom and I looked up just to, you know, get a glimpse of the night sky and it was all clouds. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the hard part. <laughs> it's, it's been Pennsylvania's very not gloomy. great in the winter. It's no, mostly cloudy. No. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. We yeah. don't have that Californian weather. <laughs> well, we, it rained last night here. So 
it is, you know, we get it, we get it here too. The Bay Area has its own weather system. That's what I'll say. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you so much for coming on this morning. It has been a pleasure talking with you and we look forward to reading any more of your books and following you on Instagram, social media, and your website. Thank you very much. It was wonderful to chat with both of you. That wraps up our show. What a fun conversation covering so many big subjects regarding space. We nerded out. like So much nerd. Yeah, you know, and I didn't even bring up Star Wars. So I'm proud of myself for that. We did bring up Star Trek. We did bring up Star Trek. We left out Star Wars. Yeah. But there's just, it's just mind boggling. It's, it's mind boggling to think about. It is incredible to be able to have the opportunity to stargaze you know, on, on our own planet and just realizing that you can stargaze anywhere that it's dark. And you're not just looking at the sky. Like you're looking at so much more. Yeah. It's not just a two dimensional sphere above you. It's right. this massive three dimensional expanse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was an and incredible I, conversation. Yeah. Her book taught me so much and I can't wait to explore the night sky in new and ultimately profound ways. See, yeah. Knowing what I'm seeing now. Mm-hmm. And Cherry Spring State Park, right? This summer, this spring, you yep. and I, maybe we'll you invite a few other people. Yeah. Can't wait. All right. Um, so this week's trivia question. So as usual, we were going to run through a trivia question. If you know the answer, please email us at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com. If you don't want to do that, if that's too much work, you can DM us through Instagram or Facebook. However you want to get the answer to us, we will see it and we will acknowledge it. So what With a is... chance to win a sticker and a shout out on Instagram. Correct. Yeah, we'll give you a shout out. We'll send you a TTB sticker, which they're pretty cool. And yeah, Elliot, what is the travel? What is the trivia question? So name either of the two book series Valerie loved reading related to space travel. So you can name either one. All right. That doesn't have to be both. Book series that I plan on adding to my book reading list, which Definitely. grows way faster. Then it shrinks. It, yeah. it never kind of like the universe. Whoa. Mind blown. Whoa. <laughs> Way to tie it all together. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to this to this episode, for listening to the podcast, for being pan- fans of our show. Uh, if you can, please rate us on iTunes. It goes a really far away in growing our show. Actually, you know, when the publicist for this book reached out to us, they said a big factor in getting... Um, in reaching out to us was the fact that we had good ratings on iTunes. So any contribution to that will potentially get us great guests. And, and it, we really can't say how much we'd appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.